This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. So if you stick to the same formula for every single board that you do, whether it's breakfast, lunch, cocktails, dessert, then you really will have an idea of how to structure anything and everything. So I always like to have a bread, a protein. I like to have some form of a cheese or not. I like to have something savory or pickled. I like to have a spread. And then I like to have a category that I call vegetable, fruit, or nuts. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll hear how to have a healthy prostate. We'll learn about building the perfect food board. We'll discuss new running shoe technology. And lastly, we'll explore the natural treatment of acid reflux and indigestion. But first, a little bit of business. Today's show is brought to you by Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Very good, Jamie. Thanks for having me again. So, you know, we haven't discussed this topic before, Gordon. And, you know, we talk a lot about women's health and women's health issues. And next month, we're going to deal with bone health and osteoporosis. But this month, we're going to talk about men's health, right? Correct. So we're going to talk a little bit about the prostate. And as men get older, one of the things I hear a lot from a lot of men is that they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, your prostate is getting bigger. And then they say, well, how do you know? Well, it's because they, sometimes the doctor will do the test where they reach in. Yep. Right. And they can actually feel the prostate and they can feel it getting bigger. Right. Mm-hmm. For most men, when the process starts getting bigger, um, I, have you ever seen, there's a TV show called The Kaminsky Method, and, and yes. I, there was one line in there, I digress a little bit, and I had to have a good chuckle at it, because it's, I think Michael Douglas was there, and his line, and the other guy, um, Alan Arkin, I believe it was, yep. he goes, as we get older, I, I pee in Morse code, dots and dashes. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that is a result of benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is the scientific name for enlarged prostate, right? Right. So as men get older, a lot of men get an enlarged prostate. Now, the million-dollar question is, what causes it? You know, a lot of people are asking that question. Yeah. Unfortunately, we really don't know. 
Oh. I mean, the scientific literature really doesn't know why we get enlarged prostates. All right. When I say there's no cause and effect, we just know we get it. It's like as people get older, our blood pressure tends to go up. Why? Who knows? But it happens, right? So yeah. this falls under that. Initially, people thought it was because, you know what, your, your testosterone levels are causing your prostate to get larger because testosterone gets converted into something called dihydrotestosterone, and that's responsible, responsible for making your, your prostate high, bigger. Except that there's evidence pro and against that concept because what they found is that a lot of men who have enlarged prostates have low circulating testosterone and that's testosterone bound testosterone free testosterone and even um, biologically available testosterone it's lower than normal oh. right you know obviously that is one of the reasons why that has that concept has been going out of favor so is it the reverse now is it the, the notion that if you have lower testosterone your prostate's getting bigger or they just don't know we don't know Right now, there's a lot of people working on it, but right now, the, the, it's still out there trying to figure it out. Because if you look at a lot of um, testosterone supplements, etc., yeah. one of the warning cautions has always been, be aware that if you take this and it increases your testosterone level, you may end up getting benign prostatic hyperplasia, meaning enlarged prostate. All right. What does the prostate do? The prostate is one of those glands, uh, let me back up here, let, look at the anatomy first and then I'll try and explain sure. how the symptoms come about, etc. Okay. One of the things with the prostate, it's a gland that surrounds the urethra. The urethra is where, when you want to pee, all the, all the, it's a tube. Right. Okay. And the, the, the urine comes down the tube from the bladder. Now, what happens as the prostate gets bigger, one of the things that it does it squeezes that tube, right? And because it squeezes that tube, the urethra, you don't, you're not getting full emptying of your bladder, right? Mm -hmm. And because you're not getting full emptying of the bladder, one of the things is that you need to go to pee more often, right? right? And you have a frequency and the urgency increases. So a lot of men with benign prostatic hyperplasia, right, and large prostate, what it is, they wake up about three or four times a night to go to the bathroom. Right. And that's because of incomplete um, emptying, right? Another thing is sometimes when they feel the urge to go, they got to go, right? Yeah. Now, the classic use of the, what the process has been shown to be useful for is that it adds fluid to as lubrication, et cetera, during sex, okay. right? Mm -hmm. When you release sperm, it adds an extra bit of fluid there to, for, for those purposes also. Right. Okay. So it, it, it's a nutrient base. The fluid that is released is a nutrient base for the sperm also. Okay. So that's one of the major uses that we know of for the prostate. Right. Now, as we get the benign prostatic hyperplasia, what the problem then becomes is that we don't sleep as well. Right. right? Because if you have to wake up three or four times a night, you're, getting, you're not getting the, the true restful sleep. And sometimes that makes things even worse. It feeds upon itself. Right. You know, one of the things that we do, that we we do know is that on the scientific side, the, the different um, types of drugs, et cetera, that, that people have used do seem to help right but again it depends on the individual it doesn't help with everybody all right on the natural side one of the things that we have seen is that 
men who have a, a, a diet high in green leafy vegetables and fruits tend to have less symptoms of benign prostatic hyperplasia. All right? okay. Now, the good thing about that, the message I get from that is that uh, one of the reasons people getting um, enlarged prostate, it could be because of an inflammatory response. Because one of the things we know in leafy green vegetables and fruits is that it's high in antioxidants. And anytime you're taking stuff high in antioxidants, one of the ways antioxidants work is because they have an anti-inflammatory effect on a lot of different processes. Because every single antioxidant is an anti-inflammatory. Right. And so it, there seems to be a component of enlarged prostate that is caused by an inflammatory response. And that has also been postulated in the scientific literature. So it's not Dr. Gordon Chang coming out with this and saying, oh, look at me, I'm so smart. No, that's, this, has been pros, um, this has been postulated in the literature. But again, at this point in time, it hasn't been definitively proved, proven. Got it. Right. Okay. So there, there. Look, I remember uh, a few months ago you came on the show and you were saying how inflammation, in general, the researchers are looking at inflammation as causes of all sorts of different ailments. That's so, right. So even uh, this e- is, even things like Alzheimer's, it's inflammation. They're claiming things like diabetes is one of the causes is inflammation. And you know what? That might be the case. And as I as I look more and more into into some of these things, it seems to me that inflammation is playing a big up role. And I, I think it's a, a chronic inflammation. It, because when we talk inflammation, one of the things that, that we need to clarify is acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation, for example, you bump your leg and it gets swollen up. That's inflammation acting a at its best. That's an acute. It's, it right. goes whack, goes wacko, and then it. But then the body controls it, comes back, right? But then there's what we call a subclinical chronic inflammation that you don't get the big swelling, but it's a. It's like an itch that's always there, and you scratch, and if you scratch it, you make it worse. That's what chronic inflammation looks like, right? So it it becomes endemic. And you always have to deal with it. So this is why I um, I say to people, you know, one of the things you should be doing is taking a good large range of antioxidants. Okay. Now, I know a lot of people ask, well, what natural products can people take for prostate? Right. Yes. Well, one of the things uh, I will say, there's the standard ones that everybody out in the industry uses. There's things like sulfametal. There's things like African pygium. There's things like stinging nettle, stinging nettle root. Mm-hmm. Right, those are the standards that a lot of people use. There's also beta cytosterol, which is a derivative. It can be found in many different places. Soy is one of the places that you get it from. You can also get it from olives, right? So beta cytosterol. Um, so that's one of the things that a lot of people use. But one of the things I would also add to that in order for you to get better sleep at night, if you have some herbs in there which actually help the bladder to empty out. Or, um, so, you know, there's some Chinese herbs that, that I particularly like. One is a herb called Polyporus umbilatus. That's the Latin name. The, the more common name is Zhuling, right? There's um, Cascuta chinensis. Those are, those are two herbs uh, and also um, 
Cork's Lacrima Joby, which is common name Adelaide seed. Those three herbs te- seem to do very well as helping the bladder empty. And and in all fairness, if you help the bladder empty and you wake up instead of three times a night, you wake up twice a night or once a night. You sleep better. If you sleep better, you automatically feel better. For sure. So right. when you say helping the bladder empty, what like what do you mean by that? Like practically speaking. Well, one of the things that it'll do, it'll, it 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 shrink or or relax the muscles, relax the tissue around the urethra, so that when you do go to the bathroom, right. It allows the urine to come out, so you have a more complete emptying of the bladder. Okay. So that means your bladder, you don't stop peeing when the bladder is still half full. Okay. All right? So these are one of the things that you can do. Now, the things like the, the um, saw palmetto, the, the African pygium, and the nettle root, those things are known to actually, well, I shouldn't say known, but those things have been postulated and have shown to actually help relax the the tissue around the urethra to help it more in, more complete emptying okay. of the um, thing of the bladder sorry are there any lifestyle choices that we can make that might help with this situation exercise of course right eating more fruits and vegetables because again the the, the diet seems to play a, a, a huge part because of the I, I call it the anti-inflammatory diet too because you you eat something rich in and green vegetables green leafy vegetables that also are also fruits so you you basically increase your intake of of antioxidants now i know a lot of people some people will will, will eat it some people will not because I know there are people they're strictly steak and potatoes yep. you're not that you give them a salad and they say what bunny food right yeah you know the individuals um, I do you know so for people like that you know what get a good antioxidant something that has many different antioxidants in the same pill because I I, I say to everyone Antioxidant. Not all antioxidants are the same. Right. And just because you have one, vitamin C is an antioxidant. But I will never say to everybody, the only antioxidant you need to take is vitamin C, and never take anything else. You need a large variety of antioxidants to optimize the benefits to your body. Okay. I'm asking this question out of ignorance because I truly don't know. Is water intake going to impact on your ability to clear the bladder? Like, is it better to have more water or less water, or does it not impact anything in this instance? I, I would say you, if you have more water, one of the things that the water will do, it'll help you clear, clear out a lot of toxins in your system. Right. right. There is a tie-in to detoxification and also with everything else that goes into your body. Okay. There is a time, the body exists because point A touches point B or problem A touches problem B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see how, how wide the circle goes on, right? Yeah. So maybe one day what we should do is to start off from one end of the body and walk your way through, but then it gets very complex and complicated if we do that. But in all fairness, the amount of water you consume is a good thing. The more water you drink, it'll help clear it out. But then there are people who say, well, the more water I drink means I have to go to the bathroom. Well, yeah, exactly. Often. Yeah. And I'll feel the urgency more often, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I, me personally, I would say get some more water into your system. And, but if you're going to be drinking a lot of water, make sure you're not too far from a bathroom. Because unfortunately for men with renan prostatic hyperplasia, when you need to go, you need to go. You can't stop and, and hold it. Right. Now, another question that people ask about benign prostatic hyperplasia 
is it related to prostate cancer? Yes. And the answer is no. Oh. Benign prostatic hyperplasia and prostate cancer are two different things. Okay. okay. Yep. Prostate cancer is when you have cancer cells invading your prostate. Now, if you talk, depends on who you talk to about prostate cancer. There are people who can have prostate cancer. I did Different types of prostate cancer, I should back up by saying. There's ones which are very aggressive, and there are ones which are not aggressive. So sometimes if you have a prostate cancer and it's not aggressive, you can die of old age before the prostate cancer becomes a thing that you need to deal with, right? Then there's the other type of prostate cancer that you get, which is very aggressive, where if you don't take it out, it'll spread everywhere and you could potentially die from it. But that's a determination that that you have to make with your oncologist or with your doctor at that point in time. There's no magic wand that anybody can wave and say, yes, you have the aggressive one or you have the the non-aggressive version. Right. the, the take-home message, BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia, and large prostate, there is no correlation with that and prostate cancer. Good. Thank you for clearing that up, and thank you for coming on the show today. You're welcome, and thanks for having me again. Next month, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk a little bit about bone health and maybe a little bit about joint health, right? Yeah, Excellent. definitely. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss building the perfect food board on the tonic. Do you worry about your cardiac health? Need to reduce your harmful cholesterol? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplement formulations to help reduce elevated blood lipid levels, help keep your cholesterol in check, and support cardiovascular well-being. Discover organic cardiac heart tincture, cholesterol, and slow-release CoQ10. Natural ingredients and guaranteed potency for healthier days and a brighter future. Let's make life better. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, is owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. Thank you. So today we are talking about sort of a different way of eating or a different way of presenting food, which is handy. I think of it as sort of when I'm entertaining. Yeah. But I think your view is doesn't have to be for entertaining. It doesn't. It could be for any time. And what we're talking about are food boards. Food boards. Save the dishes. So why boards? You know, I love entertaining and serving on a regular day or night like this because it presents beautifully. You really do save a few dishes. Right. And it 
brings conversation to the table. Right. And it's almost like you play with your food. Right. Because there's a bunch of things that you, it's composed. You need to compose the foods out there and you need to put it together. It's very artistic, it right? Is. Because you want a visually pleasing board. Yeah. But you also have to balance sort of uh, umami or yeah. sweet or salty yeah. or, or spicy or, right. or rich fats. So you, it really is an opportunity to sort of have a whole meal sort of presented all at once. Yes. Even though people think of it like an appetizer, like a charcuterie board. Yeah, but it's not. It's really not. It could be really for anything. When you think about a plate that you put on the dinner table, you think, you know, you have your vegetable, you have your protein, and you have your starch. So this kind of takes it one step further when you cook, when you're using a board. Okay. So should we talk about my formula? Yeah, let's let's hear it. Okay. So first of all, I want to talk about a few different types of boards, but we'll yeah. talk about a formula first. So if you stick to the same formula for every single board that you do, whether it's breakfast, lunch, uh, you know, cocktails, dessert, then you really will have an idea of how to structure anything and everything. So I always like to have a bread, mm-hmm. whatever that bread might be, a protein. I like to have some form of a cheese or not, depending on whether you want a cheese. That's not essential. I like to have something savory or pickled. Yeah. And we'll get into them when we get into each board. I like to have a spread. And then I like to have a category that I call vegetable, fruit, or nuts. Okay. Okay? And it really depends on the board. The cheese could be the protein, though, right? 100% the cheese could be the protein. So cheese and protein kind of go together. Right. Okay? Yep. But even if you're making a cheese board, you should follow these rules. But I think we should start with the beginning of the day. Okay, go for it. Okay. So I actually like to entertain a lot like this when I'm having a brunch. I call it my breakfast board. Okay. okay? So my bread section could be any of the following, and I like to choose two to three in each section. Okay, so the bread section could be bagels, it could be a French bread, it could be pancakes, or even waffles, or it could be a granola. Are you breaking them up into bite sizes, or are you talking about whole bagels, whole pancakes, whole uh, No, I will break them up into serving sizes. Okay. So not necessarily bite sizes, but serving sizes, so people don't have to, you don't have to have like a big knife sitting on the board so people could cut a bread. That's a pain when you're holding a plate. Yeah. Or even if you're holding, uh, yeah, like a plate or even a smaller board. And by the way, it is nice to have smaller individual size boards so people could serve themselves the food right on their board. It goes with the theme. I would only do that if people are sitting at tables. Because if you have boards, food can roll off the boards if they're carrying it around. I don't know. It can. And that's another reason why I like, try to stick to the formula, and they probably won't. Okay. Now, I'd have little plates sometimes sitting on the larger board, and you could buy those little like shelf paper sticky things that I yep. buy like a Canadian Tire or something like that. You cut them up, and you put them under a smaller dish so that things don't roll off. Okay. Those are really good. Okay, so we have a bread section. What I've been putting on my bread section for the breakfast board lately is something called a picolette. Have you ever heard of that? No, what's up? Okay, so it's a cross between a pancake and a crumpet. I think they're from Australia, Okay. and they're fantastic. And I have a recipe on my website if you want to see it. And uh, they sort of cook up like a crumpet but taste like a pancake. So I'll put a stack of those, or even pancakes or waffles, on the board in a stack. And I'll have a little tiny bowl next to it full of maple syrup, or we'll have, you know, that's getting into our um, spreads, but maybe uh, a fruit compote or a honey or a nut butter. Okay. Okay. All right. So the next section would be you need a protein. Right. So you could have smoked salmon or gravlox, or sometimes I'll make a frittata. Okay. And that's your egg. And then the protein could also be a yogurt. Right. Okay. So we are now we have our breads, we have our proteins. Cheese, I like to choose three, whatever that cheese might be for you that day. And it could be something as simple as three different cream cheeses. You know, a chive cream cheese, a cranberry cream cheese, or a plain cream cheese. 
So it's three cheeses right there. Some people don't like cheese, cream cheese, so you'll have one cream cheese and then maybe like a, like a, a nice aged Gruyere or Labneh per se. Okay. Okay. Then I like to have something pickled. So maybe pickled red onion. They go really nicely with bagels. Right. Right. Uh, spreads. We talked about that already. And then a vegetable or a nut like berries or granola could be that could be your nut or tomatoes, cucumbers. So that's a breakfast board. Okay. So it's really nice. And you're first making a brunch for people for, you know, six to eight people. You serve it all on a large board. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it because typically yeah. I think of the boards as being sort of a savory component. Yeah. And some of the things you mentioned are a sweet component. So to my mind, I would either keep the board sweet or keep the board savory. I think combining the two, I'm not sure it works. For breakfast, it works great. Does it? Oh, yeah, for breakfast. But if you want to talk about a sweet board, because we don't have all day here, we could jump right to dessert and then we'll go back. I like jumping to dessert. Okay, so let's jump to dessert. So when I do a dessert board, I actually make this sort of like my highlight cheese board. Okay. Okay. But again, we need bread. Okay, so I always have a baguette Mm because people love baguette and I'll have a nice fruit and nut cracker. Mm -hmm. And then the other bread could be cookies on your dessert board. My star, I always like to have a hero. So I'll make a chocolate salami. And that's really nice. It's a, you could look on the internet. There's tons of recipes, but it could be. It's a combination usually of melted chocolate, butter, nuts, and then you refrigerate it and you roll it into a log in plastic wrap and you cut it like you would a salami. Right. And that's my hero on that board. And then I have a few cheeses. I like a blue. I like a whole milk triple cream, like a brie, and I like an aged gouda that's a little bit sharper and firmer. Mm-hmm. Okay. My savory would be for sure dark chocolate because that's a little bit savory even though it's sweet. Okay, so big, it's, it's, I wouldn't call that savory per se, but it's, it's in that category in the sense that it's not super sweet like the rest of the stuff. So I put squares of dark chocolate in there, and my spread would be macerated strawberries or stewed plums or a fruit compote. You could buy jars of dulce de leche. You don't even have to make it anymore. You could buy jars. People love to dip their cookies in that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have a fret, the vegetable, fruit, and nut section would be figs or dates or some berries, pecans, halva if you want to put that on there, which is the sesame seeds, sugar spread, which is very lovely, and always decorate with a little bit of green, so mint leaves would be really nice on there. I like that. Yeah, that's a beautiful board. But we could talk about dinner, like a dinner board. So people think of boards as a charcuterie board. Let's go to actual dinner, because when I'm making a dinner party for six people, I actually like to serve it on a board, put it down the center of the table, and just people talk, and they they pick and talk about the food, and it stirs up a lot of conversation. So again, bread. I like to serve a baguette spread with tomato. It's a Spanish thing. Yep. Pan con tomate. You make a tomato mixture, a grated tomato, a little bit of garlic, salt, and pepper. You spread it on a toasted baguette and cut it up into serving pieces. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. I'll serve one bread on that whole board. And then for the protein, I will cut up a steak. Like I'll, I'll grill up a steak, slice it up thin, mm-hmm. and serve it as the protein. Pe- people could put it on the bread. Always some mustards and then maybe some like a ricotta cheese that's spread with a little bit of honey through the ricotta cheese and black pepper. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful spread. And then for the savory or pickled section, I will have some, like a salad. So like maybe something simple like an endive leave mm-hmm. with a little bit of a balsamic vinaigrette right on it. And you compose those all along your board and then people pick and choose and they have a full plate in front of them and they could talk about the food and it's a beautiful way to entertain. I agree. Well, let's go with the classic. Classic, charcuterie. 
Okay, so I actually call this my apres ski board because mm-hmm. anytime between three and seven. Okay. <laughs> okay. So again, crackers are a good thing. I call this also my board that you don't have to cook anything. Right. Buy everything for this. So great crackers, toasted baguette, Christine Ace Bakery makes great ones. Proteins are usually my charcuterie. I like to have a uh, a beef one. Some people like beef, so I do a brisola for that. So it's a cured beef. Then we have a beautiful chorizo, which is nice because it has a little bit of spice, but not too much. I like to serve a, a Tuscan fennel salami that you hand slice with a knife, mm-hmm. and then a prosciutto, which people most people love that. Yep. Steamed shrimp would be lovely to put on there. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the other area, cheese. I usually do a block of Parmesan cheese drizzled with honey, like chopped up yep. into big hunks. Uh, savory or pickled, you know, grainy mustard, pickled vegetables, olives. The spread, I usually put hummus right on the board. Spread a little bit right on the board. You could drizzle a little bit of honey on it. Sorry, not honey, olive oil on it. And delicious spread right on the board. And lastly, the vegetable fruit or nut. I like a quince pate. Have you ever had that? It's like a jam, yeah, but a little bit thicker. And that's it. There you go. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're so welcome. Uh, You're coming back next month and we're going to discuss how to incorporate a meatless Monday into our Mm, diet. Absolutely. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss new running shoe technology on The Tonic. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living a very long, pain-free, energized life. Your body's craving heirloom nano and micronutrients that you'll use to elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. Activation makes all this possible no matter how old or young you are. The precious time, energy, and money you invest to be healthy is taken very seriously by Activation. It's their responsibility to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. People consistently report back the most beautiful health results when they daily consume products from Activation. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a luxurious body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to activationproducts.com and subscribe for the most important health information and products. Or call 1-866-271-7595. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Stacey Irvine is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners, just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes, looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's made several appearances as a fitness expert on CityLine, Canada AM, Global Television Network, City TV, WTN, and is frequently quoted as a fitness expert in Chatelaine, Glow Magazine, More Magazine, Zoomer, and the Toronto Star. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So 
I feel like the topic that we we are going to talk about today, if it had only been brought to my attention, if this only existed before I hurt myself running, <laughs> I'd be much more enthusiastic. But it is good news for runners, right? It's very good news for runners. And it's a fun story just because I think when you think of the history of the running shoe, and I used to run track during this whole time of Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight, and right. it was a great history. You know, he he made a shoe in a waffle iron that kind of revolutionized how we run and how fast we run. Right. And then what I found was that all the shoes caught up and some of the companies weren't making great shoes. And, right. you know, so it was it was really hit or miss. You had to, like, go try the shoe and see how it felt on you. And so I'm, I'm finding it kind of exciting from a historical perspective that we're back to really new, interesting technology for runners. And, and I think that it, this story is a lot of fun, actually. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Okay, so it's the Nike Vapor Fly that really has changed a lot of the world in running. So all the new world records were broken wearing this shoe, including um, the female world record, the marathons. Now we have a bunch of times on the 10,000 meters and the 5,000 meters because it also has a huge impact on their race times. So they they touted it as a 4% improvement. Wow. Which is huge over a marathon. For sure. And their goal, so their goal at Nike was to go under two hours. You know, they had this whole hashtag thing going that was sub two hours. And they did it. They did it on a track. So it hasn't, you know, it's not really validated. But then, of course, with the Olympics coming up, we're seeing it everywhere because everyone's saying, okay, is it cheating? You know, what, what well, why, if is I it, why, why is it cheating if, if the technology is there, right? Anybody right. can buy a pair of shoes, right. right? Yes. So that was the controversy. And then they said, okay, what are we going to do? So um, Athletics International decided they're going to put a limit on the sole thickness. So I believe that's 40 millimeters. And the technology had a carbon plate in the middle of the shoe, and a couple of the shoes had multiple carbon plates, so they're not allowing that. They're saying one carbon plate, what from the, what, what I've heard. What do the carbon plate do? Is help stabilize the shoe? It or? does, which is really interesting. As a person you know, like you, um, I run a bit, yep. but... These days, I find when I run a bit, my knees are sore, my yep. ankles are sore, yep. and I sometimes wonder, is it worth it? So, of course, I'm very excited about this technology because it is, it's going to filter down for all of us. Right. Eventually, and, the plebs like us yes. will, will get the shoes. <laughs> people, the, the people that aren't breaking world records, we might right. get a hold of the shoes. That being said, they're expensive. I, so, that was my next question. Yeah. So so when you say accessible, it's interesting. And, and that's where the controversy has come in with these competitive runners. Because what if you were not sponsored by Nike? That means you're not allowed to wear Nike. Right. So sure enough, all the other companies, Adidas, Brooks, Saucony, they probably got a hold of these shoes and reverse you know, engineered right yeah and dissected them and said what what's going on here why is this working so well adidas had the boost technology a few years ago and and a few runners did very well with that but now they're saying that the gains of this new shoe is far beyond that what what's the science like like what what are these shoes doing that makes people run that much faster it's a good question so part of it is the carbon plate right so if you think of carbon you know it's very hard Yep. And very stable. 
And so I believe from, if I go back to years ago, my biomechanics class, the fact that when you hit the ground, you're on a very hard, stable surface, that's great. Okay. Okay. So we know that hard tracks, for example, are going to produce faster times than soft tracks. It's just the ground reaction force coming back. So we've got the stable plate. Then they invented this very special type of foam that doesn't just absorb the shock, it rebounds you. So it actually propels you forward with every step. Okay. So that's pretty fascinating. And the new shoe that they've tested, so we've got now, and it's called an Air Zoom Alpha Fly Next. So when the rules were made by, you know, what by the governing bodies to say, what can and can't we do here? They said, you have to release the shoe to the public three months before the Olympics so that everybody that wants to wear the shoe has a chance to wear the shoe. But isn't that like when they release a movie like two weeks before the Oscars that nobody gets to see? Yeah. It, it, no, it, like it's, like it's, you release it like, you know, in three cities. So yes. like 50 people see it and all of a sudden it's eligible. Yeah. Is that the same well, kind of thing it's, here? It's a risky business for sure. And, and I think that part of this to Nike's advantage is they are getting so much press on this and so much coverage. And then the fact that people are talking about, is it fair or not, right? That yeah. adds to the conversation. Sure. And then you also have many runners who possibly can't afford this shoe. What, what's the premium? How much more so is it? It's 250 base to get the shoe, $250 for a pair of shoes. Which lasts, what, like a season? Um, they say, not even, they say 200, I think it's 200 miles for one pair of shoes. However, they sell out. Right. So you can't, it's very difficult to get them. And then what people have been having to do is buy them on a used market at a premium. So but, but they're if, spending more for them. Okay. Here's the thing, though. Yeah, $250 sounds like a lot, mm-hmm. but... You know, I'm not a great runner, but I was still spending 150, 180 on my shoes. You're right. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, so what are we looking at? A 50% premium? Yes. And I, here's what I think is going to happen: is after the Olympics, we have we have many more shoe companies now in the mix. Right. So for you and I, this is going to be great. Yeah. We're going to get access to this technology, whether we buy it through Nike, Brooks, Adidas, whoever. All the shoes are seeming to go this way. It makes sense that they are. It, it yeah. is a significant advantage. So I think the price will come down, and I think we'll be able to get the shoes for everyone at a little bit better price point. I, I don't understand the controversy. I, I mean, there's always technology that moves things forward. Mm-hmm. I remember with swimming, yes. it was an issue of the yeah. aerodynamics the of the yes. suits that they were wearing, right? Yes, and yes. Now we don't have to look at so many Speedos. Yes. But, but, it's but, exactly the but same. But it's the same thing, it right? Is. It, it is. And if you take a look, you know, running, it's, yes, you can spend a lot of money on your running equipment and if you want to get your Fitbit and by the time you outfit yourself, you can, you can choose to spend a ton of money. But I wouldn't say it's the most expensive sport to take up you, you know like i, I don't play hockey right. but you're oh, spe- you're spending far more in hockey yes. than you are running yes. I, I can't really cry too much for runners no. w- what are you buying you're buying a pair of shoes pair and, of running shoes and you're getting outside and they're going to take you about 200 miles and going outside to run is free which right. is wonderful i think overall it's great i think it's really great for the recreational runner the runners who are at a disadvantage are the runners who are paid 
by the other competing companies, meaning they're not allowed right. to wear those shoes. So those are the runners where the original controversy came from, for sure. But I've had some really interesting conversations with some other runners who are running at a high level, but they're not sponsored runners. So they're closer to you and I would be. Right. And the really fun part for them is that they said, you know, I I predominantly do miles or 10Ks, but now I'm going to jump into a marathon because I know that when I wear these shoes, the wear and tear on my body is going to be so much less and it's going to take me less time to recover from running that marathon. And I think that's a great thing for all of us. Sure. If it it encourages people to get outside and and to do more, it it, it has to be a good thing. Yeah. So I'm not even sure... Like that, it's unfair to those other runners, right? Because they're they're being uh, promoted because they're going to win races, mm-hmm. right? So if the company can't get them to win races, right? If if yes. using their shoe yes. means that they're not as competitive, yeah. well, then that's on the shoe companies to it step is. it up, right? It like is. at the end of the day, it is. And knowing a little bit about contract law, if if the relationship isn't working, if you're promoting somebody yes. and they're not winning, that yes. relationship isn't going to be long. In any event. So yes. I guess the real question is how many people can score the Nike sponsorships, really? That's the Yeah. Which yeah. has probably always been the case, right? It, it is. And and again, I I have to applaud Nike a bit. And I, I I have to say that I love I love that it's had this history with shoes and that it's coming back to its original right. history and doing a good job. And that good job is going to benefit all of us. It's exactly the same thing as when carbon tennis rackets came in. You right. know, we switched from wood to carbon. And then the big head tennis rackets, right? Yes, and the big head as well. And for all of us that are doing these sports recreationally, it makes the sport more accessible, which I love and I think is a, a really wonderful thing. So I think it's a fun story. I think it's going to make watching these races, you know, the marathon and the, yeah. the long races don't usually get a lot of fandom happening around them. So I think it's going to make them a little more fun to watch. And I think it's going to be great for these companies that are manufacturing these things. And and I think it's going to be great for all of us. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited about it. Very quick last question. Yes. If I'm a casual runner, what sort of reasonable expectations should I have of this technology in helping me? Is it just going to help me run faster or is there any- I think it's going to make you slightly faster. I think the shock absorbing is going to yeah. make it easier on your joints. But I also want to say, don't run out and do a marathon in the new shoes. Right. Just They're like, not magic. <laughs> well, just like any other technology, you're changing some angles. You're changing, you know, the level of height in the shoe. You got to ease into it. Right. So, you know, wear it a bit, then maybe go back to your old shoes, and then just every day increase a little more. Don't go and do, you know, kind of blow your brains out on your first run. <laughs> Good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Next month, you're going to come back and you're going to tell us the top tips to prepare for getting outside because it's almost spring. Yeah. Fantastic. Goodness. (laughs) We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to discuss acid reflux and indigestion on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. 
This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a practicing naturopathic doctor in Canada. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. So I know from publishing the magazine for for many, many years that the things that are common and seem simple that seem to give people the most trouble and, you know, indigestion and, you know, severe, more severe indigestion like acid reflux are things that a lot of people suffer from, right? They are. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure you see it in your practice. I do. And what are the causes of, of, of acid reflux? So this is really interesting because acid reflux, it's most, most people think of it as too much stomach acid being produced. So it's treated in the medical world with acid blocking agents because it's thought to be okay. As you say, severe indigestion becomes acid reflux, heartburn, and then we suppress the stomach acid. But most of the time, it's actually not too much stomach, it's too much stomach acid being produced. And most people, the reason why they have heartburn could be food intolerances, hiatal hernias, so having a little outpouching of tissue in between where the stomach and the esophagus meet, so yep. that the it kind of is a leaky valve and the stomach acid keeps kind of leaking back up into the esophagus. And then also things like inflammation or even aging can cause heartburn and changes in stomach acid production. But again, it's not necessarily that it's too much acid being produced. Right. So like, so for example, as you're getting older, there may be foods that you used to be able to eat, like a great example is like spicy foods, but you know, you're just not able to eat them as you get older and that may cause the issue, right? Exactly. Spicy foods or that, you know, for some people, I see this commonly, they used to always be able to consume dairy. Right. And then for whatever reason, once they get, you know, later in life, over 60, they have some dairy and they feel changes in digestion or a little bit of stomach burning. Okay. So, so what are, what are the most common reasons that you see for gas or bloating that's sort of like the starting point for indigestion? Again, I'd probably see the number one is food intolerance or food sensitivity. So it's not an allergy. It's not that they're having an allergic response or hives, but it's not agreeing with them and they're not properly digesting it. And with that probably is the second most common or maybe tied in is change in bacteria in the digestive tract in both good and bad. So we know we have good bacteria in the digestive tract known as probiotics so those help us digest. And sometimes we have we have a bacteria most commonly known as H. pylori that can grow in the stomach in overproduction and cause indigestion, bloating, gas, and also heartburn. So we want to have a balance of the bacteria in the stomach. You mentioned uh, previously that traditional medicine uh, treats the issue with acid-blocking medications. What do you see that, what's a good with that and what's bad with that? So again, the kind of, you know, these acid blocking medications are given because it's more commonly thought that people have acid reflux because of too much acid in the stomach. And because that's not the primary reason, already you're giving a medication that's not actually getting at what's actually going on. It's a Band-Aid. 
And so this medication is given. The most common ones are common ones are proton pump inhibitors. Those are emozaprol or omeprazole. It's one of the most commonly prescribed medications in Canada. So I have lots of patients on these meds. And a lot of people find one of the big issues with them is they go on them because they go to the doc and they say, you know, I'm having a little bit of reflux, I feel a little bit of bloating. They're given this proton pump inhibitor and they're on it for eight months and then they can't get off of it because once they remove the proton pump inhibitor, the stomach actually does create excess acid and they're almost in a worse off position than they were in the first place. The other issue with them is um, because they block the acid production, they're reducing the chance that we absorb vitamins and minerals. So the stomach is naturally a very acidic place. It needs to be acidic because the acid helps the absorption, especially things like B12. So we see a lot of increased B12 deficiency when someone's on these proton pump inhibitors or low levels of B12. And especially as we age, we need B12 for energy, but also for memory. I was about to ask you, what happens if we don't get enough B12? Yeah, but the first thing is, especially in the older population, changes in memory and changes in, in energy, also mood. Okay. And then finally, with the acid-blocking agents, they also change the bacteria in the stomach. So talking about good bacteria versus bad bacteria, there's something that I'm sure you've heard of called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's getting a lot of press right now. It's become a very popular web search, Mm -hmm. but it's essentially, it is as it sounds, a small bacterial overgrowth. It's abnormal bacteria growing in the intestine. And we know that these acid blocking agents increase the chance that these abnormal bacteria are growing. If you have that, like what happens? What are the symptoms? Bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, essentially a lot of the same symptoms. Many people may seek out one of these acid blocking agents in the first place. They take it, maybe initially they feel better because their heartburn's gone, but then after a few months, or unfortunately for many patients I see, after years of being on these proton, these acid blocking medications, they become more bloated and have more gas and have more you know, diarrhea and digestive symptoms because their acid has been suppressed for so long. So it's changed the bacteria further. And again, now they, have, they may have some nutrient deficiencies because they haven't had this acid to absorb the nutrients with. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned H. pylori, which is, which is a bacteria. It's a bad one. What is it that we should know about that bacteria? Like, is it, is it, do we get it by ingesting certain foods? Like, how do we get it and why should we care? Yeah, so actually about 66% of the world's population is affected at one time or another with H. pylori. And that's much higher in developing countries. We know in developing countries, it's up to 80% of adults can have an H. pylori infection. And some people have no symptoms of an H. pylori infection, but again, I mean, it's, it's hard to tease out. A lot of the signs and symptoms of an H. pylori infection are the same as just common indigestion, that bloating, belching, nausea, abdominal discomfort. Some people do vomit with it. But the important thing I wanted to highlight with H. pylori is if you do have an infection, that H. pylori bacteria is in the stomach, and it resides in there, it likes an acidic, acidic environment. And if you do have 
an H. pylori infection that goes untreated, it increases your uh, chance of stomach cancer by about sixfold. Wow. So I talk to patients a lot. If they've been struggling with bloating, indigestion, nausea for a long time, it's important to get tested for H. pylori. And if you do have H. pylori, even though I'm a naturopathic doctor, I definitely support the antibiotic treatment of H. pylori and then some supportive naturopathic treatment on top of that to prevent its reoccurrence. But the antibiotics are one of the best ways to completely eradicate the infection. But it is, you know, that's so, if, if you've got bloating, gas, indigestion, one, you want to think about first and foremost, it's simple to get tested for H. pylori. It's actually a breath test. You get, you go to the lab and instead of having blood work done, the best method is collecting it through breath or stool. And then if you do have an infection, treat it and then start thinking about food intolerances and so forth. Is there something that even if you love it, maybe you shouldn't be eating it because it, it is contributing to indigestion and gas. What other sorts of treatments are available on the natural side for acid reflux? One is avoiding, as you mentioned, the foods. So some of the most common trigger foods for indigestion, heartburn, coffee, refined sugars, refined fat, sugary carbohydrates, spicy foods, tomatoes, and focusing on real whole foods. So, you know, a lot of vegetables, fruits, simple things, like not too much fat or grease. Grease normally really is difficult for the digestive system. You want to give foods that are just easy for the body to move through. So you think a greasy hamburger, that's going to take a lot of work for your digestive system to really get down and, and get through versus something like maybe some rice, no sauce or no like heavy fatty food, maybe a little bit of chicken and some vegetables. Some people that have really bad reflux, they even re- react to things like berries or apples because they do contain a little acid. So something like a banana usually is really easy on the stomach. So you think of when a child's sick, they can have bananas, toast, rice. If you're having a really bad, I have many patients that have these, these episodes where they have a few days of really bad heartburn, you want to go back to the basics, even white rice, bananas, a little bit of chicken and bone broth or some simple soups are, are the best way to go. Some of the other natural things that can be done is not eating too close to bedtime, propping yourself up on a few pillows when you get into bed. A lot of other people, especially because indigestion or heartburn, there's that leaky valve. So they, when they lie down, it gets worse. And then having some real soothing teas like chamomile and peppermint can also be helpful. Well, that's good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Next month, you're going to be back with healthy travel tips. Yes. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Carolyn Cohen, Dr. Stacey Irvine, and Dr. Emily Lipinski, ND. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss how digital technology can help us deal with public health emergencies, personal responsibility in the path to well-being, solo pleasure when coupled, 
and getting rid of that difficult belly fat. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.